This is the Out of Water Podcast. Out of Water is a production of Rio Vista Community Church in Fort Lauderdale, Florida. You can find it on iTunes, Google Play, or Spotify. We hope you'll subscribe and give us a good rating to help others find Out of Water. Welcome, friends, to another edition of the Out of Water Podcast. I'm your host, Mark Lautenschlager, and uh, joining me is our pastor of spiritual formation, Reverend Sam Kastensmith. And today, it's Traveling Mark. Sam is in his in his normal place. He's in the office back in Fort Lauderdale, but I'm coming to you from the kitchen table in Gainesville, Florida, which is just a delightful place to be right now. Go Gators. Go Gators. Our worship pastor, who is a fine man with only really one character flaw, and that is he's a seminal graduate. Um, that's really the only thing I have against him. And uh, he did take a shot at the swamp water up here. But as I said, it keeps the COVID under control. It's very calm here in Alachua County. And I think it's got to do with the fresh air in the swamp water. So yeah. it apparently is a, it's apparently a winning uh, combination. So he took a dig saying not even COVID wants to go to Gainesville. He did. He did. But uh, that's fine because I'm here and I feel safe. You know? <laughs> So we're welcoming you to our week five of All Things New, which is our message series going on right now at Rio Vista Community Church. Um, it's a series that asks us to consider what it is that we are pursuing. You know, are we pursuing life apart from God or are we pursuing life in Jesus Christ? And then to make this consideration, we're reading both from the book of Ecclesiastes and then from Paul's letter to the Philippians. And Ecclesiastes, as we've said each week, observes the pursuit of things that are under the sun. Its author tells us that there's nothing above the sun. That is, if, if there is no God, then the grave is going to rob us of everything. And then by contrast, Philippians is really one of the most cheerful books in the Bible. Paul describes a life that is found in Christ and the contentment that such a life brings. Um, and it's been really kind of a fascinating comparison as we've gone through each week. And this week, we're talking about the pursuit of knowledge and wisdom, which on the surface of it, Sam, if I said I'm pursuing knowledge and wisdom, that would be seen as a good thing, I think, for most people. Aren't, sure, we su- yeah. aren't we supposed to be pursuing knowledge? Yeah, people go to college and they go yeah. through school. They spend, uh, you know, whatever it is, a fourth of their life pursuing knowledge in, in schools. And so you'd think this would be a really good thing. Yeah. So that raises the question of, is there a fundamental flaw with that? I think that God wants us to sort of consider the meaning of life, to look at, you know, mm-hmm. this pursuit of knowledge and wisdom, which really is to, in a way, is to understand ourselves and understand our world. It is to get this knowledge of of life, you know. But the mm-hmm. more that we learn, and I think that's going to be the message from Solomon this week, the more that we learn and the more that we know, the more that leads us to one inescapable conclusion, which is life really has no meaning. <laughs> life under the sun just doesn't mm-hmm. have a meaning. It's just you're literally just going through uh, the motions. Wisdom or knowledge without God actually becomes this burdensome thing. Um, it's interesting when, when I was going through seminary, they made us read a lot of philosophers that I probably never, ever would have otherwise read back then. And so you're reading through these, these, some of the brilliant, most brilliant minds in history. And one of the things that you can pick up in all of them is there's this desperation to find meaning, some reason for, for why we exist, why we suffer, why we die. And all of them, if they're if they're not Christians, all of them come up short and they offer these kind of Hail Mary philosophies of, well, maybe this could be true. 
Um, or they just, if you know, existentialists, they just say that ah, there's really no purpose and everything's here for just misery and suffering and congratulations, <laughs> you know. <laughs> and, and so you, this has been something that when the brightest minds stop for a moment and they think, you know, what are we here for? If they don't include the possibility of God, of something beyond ourselves, then wisdom and knowledge really leaves you in this empty, desperate place. Yeah, I think that Solomon uh, is sort of saying like the wise person dies the same way that the fool does and really mm-hmm. is no better off for knowing that life is meaningless. He's almost saying that it's better to be foolish in mm-hmm. a way if if we're just talking about our life in this world under the sun and, and there's nothing beyond that. He's kind of, I think, saying that it's better to be a, a fool because at least you die happy as mm-hmm. opposed to the guy that has all this knowledge and wisdom and looks around him and says, this is really there's no purpose in this. This is just meaningless. Yeah. I mean, I think that's one of the reasons why, you know, when you're talking about, you know, things that are taboo that you're not allowed to talk with other people about, one of the reasons why religion is considered taboo is it, it forces people to stop for a moment and to ponder meaning, to ponder their mortality, to, to, to examine why they're here. And that's just too heavy. We don't want to go there. We don't want to think about why, you know, what's going to happen when we die. We don't want to consider any of those kinds of questions because they are very heavy to carry, especially if you don't have any hope. Um, and so we, we deliberately block those conversations out um, and we just pretend like this is all there is. And we keep our, our focus, you know, an inch in front of our face so that we don't have to consider the eternal questions. Yeah. The passage for this week in the Ecclesiastes passage is Ecclesiastes chapter 1, verses 12 through 18. He writes, I, the preacher, have been king over Israel in Jerusalem, and I applied my heart to seek and to search out by wisdom all that is done under heaven. It is an unhappy business, that really hit me, that God (laughs) has given to the children of man to be busy with. I have seen everything that is done under the sun, and behold, All is vanity and striving after wind. And then he says, what is crooked cannot be made straight and what is lacking cannot be counted. That that's like a cry for help. (laughs) (laughs) You know, it's because the, the first, okay. The first thing that I noticed was he said that he applied, he says, I applied my heart, which means Solomon is looking within himself, right? Mm -hmm. He's that's the, the first thing that is, is illustrative about reading Ecclesiastes is Solomon keeps talking about. I, I, Mm -hmm. I applied my heart. I used my wisdom. I looked within all of the answers that Solomon is seeking are answers that do not involve God, at least for the, at least for the first, you know, until you get to the end of Ecclesiastes. Yeah. And he means it like this is an intentional exercise. You know, Solomon is saying, okay, let's pretend that I, you know, there is no God. Here's what we would have to conclude. And so, you know, the preacher is this fictional character who's having this conversation. And he's going to, you know, this, this preacher is going to start talking and you know, what you're left to do is to refute his logic. Um, if, if you reject a God, okay, well, tell me where any of this is untrue. Um, let, me, let me try to find purpose under heaven without God. And if you disagree, if you can find purpose, let me know. But here's how I see it. And so, you know, in front of this, this audience is the idea. He starts laying it down. And it's, his logic is pretty 
is pretty, pretty good. unassailable. It's, yeah. yeah, it's inescapable. So he he says that he's gonna he's gonna search out by wisdom all that is done under heaven. I guess meaning I'm gonna survey all of the activities of man, and then he says something that really was like. It is an it is an unhappy business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. I when mm-hmm. I read that sentence, I thought that it, yeah yeah okay God you know it's like God wants you to spin your wheels. He I think he intends us to have to work through this, but I don't think it's coming from this vindictive, vengeful God that's like ha ha ha. Let me watch you struggle. Uh-huh. I think it's 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 almost like a wise parent who wants you to understand that the safest place you can be is with him. And that if you're trying to do this on your own, you'll only find misery. And so it's, it's a love and kindness that where he allows you to kind of grind against this inescapable logic to make you realize that he is the safest place for your heart and for your life. I asked the question last week in our personal worship time about, um, you know, why do some people seem to be able to just cruise along without ever giving God a thought? And they seem perfectly happy. Let's be honest. When we, when we look around our society, there are people out there who have taken on this sort of, you know, I do the right thing because it's the human thing to do. It's a sort of a humanist, uh, socialist, uh, you know, let's all sing Kumbaya and drink a Coke together or something. <laughs> and they get this, you know, this, this sort of brotherhood of man thing going. And there's nothing wrong with that. I'm not saying that any of those behaviors are wrong, but coming from their motivation where they say, I just do this because it's the right thing to do. I don't even think about whether there's a God or not. Um, when I hear somebody say that, I think, mm-hmm. well, first of all, how do you even know right or wrong apart from a God? If God's not here, mm-hmm. what's right and wrong, if God's not here, should be whatever makes me happy for the moment. Yeah. And it's it's not determined by something that's objective above man, that's universal to everyone. If if there is no God, then whoever is strongest imposes his view, or whoever has the most power imposes their view of right and wrong, and that becomes the societal norm. And so, you know, if you go to a, a colony where they practice cannibalism and you go there and say, How dare you? You know, they're gonna look they're not gonna go, I know we do this evil thing. Yeah. <laughs> that's what they've concocted to be moral. I mean, if you went to, you know, Nazi Germany, uh Hitler had the support of the people, you know. There was nothing illegal that his that his generals or lieutenants did. They carried out what they felt was best for the country and it was absolutely evil. Um, And I think one of the things that that happens when you find someone who goes through life with that humanitarian thing, I think that's common grace. I think God gives them. I'm I'm glad that they have it. Mm -hmm. But one of the things I think that's inevitable um, is that if you really stop for a moment and you think beyond just doing the next right thing and you think of your life and its meaning in in a larger capacity, in a longer capacity, you can't help but come to the conclusion that it's ultimately meaningless. Mm-hmm. Um, one of the one of the most tragic examples of this to me um, was Bertrand Russell. And if you go to the 20th century, the 1900s, Bertrand Russell was one of the most famous atheists alive. He wrote the book, you know, Why I'm Not a Christian. He was very outspoken against his faith, and he grew up at a time, you know, where. Everybody believed that the technology was growing and we would be able to create a utopia on earth where we didn't need God and religion anymore. You know, we had medicines and we had all these, you know, revolutions going on that were making humanity better. Mm-hmm. And he was convinced we would no longer need God. And then World War II happened. 
And oh wow, yeah. He began to see, oh my goodness, like look at all the technologies that man has developed. They're using them for evil. And after after World War II, the the with the atomic bomb, he spent the remainder of his life as an anti-nuclear uh, weapons advocate. Like he was trying to anti-proliferation, you know, he wanted to put an end to it. And he ends his life. So this guy who started as an unbeliever saying, you know, we're going to do it and we have this great enthusiasm and we're not going to need God because we're going to perfect the world and love each other well. In his, in his autobiography, at the end of his life, he writes this. This is a crushing quote. Um, very Ecclesiastes-ish. He says, I used to be uh, enthusiastic or optimistic. And then he writes, but now all this has shrunk to be no more than my own reflection in the windows of the soul through which I look out upon the night of nothingness. Hmm. No dungeon was ever constructed so dark and narrow as that in which the shadow physics of our time imprisons us. For every prisoner has believed that outside of his walls a free world existed, but now the prison has become the whole universe. There is darkness without, and when I die there will be darkness within. There is no splendor. There is no vastness anywhere. Only triviality for a moment and then nothing. Why live in such a world? Why even die? And so here you have this guy who has had this tremendously optimistic, you know, we're, we're going to love each other and we're going to improve humanity and we're going to carry on and we're going to do these great things. And he, he ran up against the wall of this fallen world. Mm-hmm. And all of that optimism was smashed to where he realized, you know what, there's there's no point to any of this. It's only triviality and suffering for a moment and then nothing. Why why bother living? And that's that's where Solomon is getting. So Bertrand Russell and the preacher would be amening one another, you know. <laughs> but that's where it inevitably leads you. You know, as I looked at it and considered you have these people that, that seem to be perfectly happy, you know, moving along in life with this idea that somehow, right, we're all going to make this utopia because we're all going to suddenly become uh, equally enlightened at the same time or something. You know, we're all going to start thinking the same way, and then we're just going to go off and create the Garden of Eden again all over again. And I, and I hear all those things, and I'm like, what you're trying to do is that. You're trying to recreate mm-hmm. that Garden of Eden. You're trying to... All of these things that God has given to people as examples of how he wants the world to be. And then we, we walked away from that. You know, it's like we, we are the wickedness that's inside of men is what separates us from the garden. There's a reason why he put mm-hmm. the angel with the flaming sword to keep us out of the garden is <laughs> yeah. because we mess it up when we get in there. And so until we're, until we go through this thing where he redeems us and we don't have that part of us anymore, we can't go back to the garden. And yet people don't want to accept that. They want to produce this utopia. They want to get back to their on their own strength. And Solomon and, and Bertram Russell are both saying at some point when you get to the end of all of this, when you go and push and as go as far as you can, you're going to realize there's I, it's, I've missed it. There's nothing that I can do. And Solomon, I think that's what he's getting at in verse 15, Sam, where he says, what is crooked cannot be made straight and what is lacking cannot be counted. I would have I would have written that you can't go back again. Mm-hmm. It's like when it's done, it's done. You know, if it's yeah. crooked, you can't straighten it out. If you don't have it, you can't count it. You can't go back and fix what has gone before. Where mm-hmm. we are now is where we are, you know. Um, and I just, again, this idea that there's there's this sense of hopelessness apart from 
God in Solomon's writings. It's like, it's just hopeless, guys. It doesn't matter what you do. If you fix it today, it's going to be broken again tomorrow. If you think it's going to be better next week, it's just going to be more broken after that. And, you know, this, it, it is, it's hard to read. You know, it's, 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 you said once it sort of reads like Solomon's suicide note. And if you didn't mm-hmm. read the entire book, you would have that feeling. Yeah, totally. Yeah. And, and I think, you know, this being kind of the alter ego of who Solomon is, I think it's interesting um, when he says, whatever is crooked cannot be straight. You know, he's saying that and impersonating somebody who rejects the existence of God, you know, because without God, like all of, like you said, all my past, it's stuck. I can't right wrongs. I can't go back and atone for all the, the ways that I've wronged the world. I can't, I can't get rid of the selfishness in my heart. I can't do a lot of things. Um, but one of my very favorite uh, passages in all of Scripture actually comes from the pen of Solomon. And it's, you know, this is another one of those, as you call them, refrigerator magnet mm-hmm. passages. Yep. But listen listen to the contrast, because here, without God, he's saying what is crooked cannot be made straight. But when you add God, what does he say? In Proverbs 3, verses 5 and 6, what does it say? It says, trust in the Lord with all your heart. Okay, so there you go. Like, do not lean on your own understanding. So you've got to set aside, you know, your understanding and your wisdom, and you've got to yield to him and trust to him. And then what does he say? And all your ways acknowledge him, and he will do what? He will make your paths straight. Um, and so only the Lord can straighten the crooked. Mm-hmm. And when you put your trust in him, and when you set aside your own understanding to trust in him, then you find the peace of seeing things that are crooked made straight. In Romans chapter 8, uh, Paul writes, uh, in verses 20 and 21, he writes, For the creation was subjected to futility, not mm-hmm. willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. So what's been done isn't like you say it's not vindictive it's not a punishment but but it's almost like it's almost like God's like you're not going to understand your need for redemption and if you don't understand your need for redemption you can't be redeemed you know there's no possibility that you can come here saying I'll redeem myself I don't need your help you have to first come to the end of your rope you know you have to say it's crooked I can't straighten it it's gone I can't count it okay I'm at the end of my rope and now I turn to God. I'm 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 ready for that redeemer. I'm ready for that redemption of creation to break free from that futility. Yeah, you know, because mm-hmm. until we do that, until we can until we sort of reach that, and some of us reach it quicker than others. I was there by like age eight. You know, I was pretty much sure that I was not, you know <laughs> I was pretty sure I wasn't gonna redeem myself very early on. I knew I was not a good dude. Um but I think there's some people that, that still walk around with that attitude of like, look, I really don't need you know, I, I understand if you need God, if you need that crutch, if you need that invisible friend, that's fine, but it's not something I need. I'm fine without him. I'm fine on my own um but there's going to be a point where that runs out yeah you know i would recently i was looking at that passage that you were talking about in romans chapter eight where it says that you know creation is subject to the bondage of decay right Mm -hmm. and and this idea is you know it's the second law of thermodynamics that everything is constantly deteriorating you know the the desk where my microphone is in a thousand years is going to be dust you know it's everything is constantly decomposing stars are running out of gas everything is is falling apart and in some sense that kind of of bondage that is out there in the universe is going on with our souls right mm. now 
Mm-hmm. You know, we're we're constantly deteriorating. We're constantly, you know, succumbing to death until actual physical death gets a hold of us. And one of the things that I love in the way that Paul just really poetically in that passage it, where he, he says that it's it's like the pains of child labor that the earth is going into. Right. Well, when do, when does the labor actually happen? When does the when does the earth give birth? Right. And it's it's talking about the morning of the resurrection, which is really cool. And on that morning, out of the earth come all of these newly redeemed and glorified human beings when Jesus comes to bring the resurrection and literally out of the graves come the new life and creation is giving birth to humanity. And at that moment when humanity stands glorified and we're no longer, we're no longer in bondage to sin. Now the creation shares in that freedom and all of the the ways that the creation is broken on that day the creation becomes perfect and glorified with us mm. as free as sons, you know, just as free as the sons, it says. And I love that image, you know, but it requires in that it's what it's saying is this. Everything is going to need to be remade. God is, as our series is called, God is making all things new. Mm. And on that day, <sighs> yeah. we will be new and this earth will be new and the effects of sin and death will be gone. Yeah. Have we just answered the question then of why doesn't God just make everything easy for us now? <laughs> you know, <laughs> why does why does God make us go through all this? You know, I think there's there's a, a putting on my skeptic hat for a second as I've been trying to do in, in this conversation. I mean, there, again, there's going to be people that look at you and go, "Hey, look, that's fine, Sam." But mm-hmm. look, if God was really there and if God really loved us, then He would just take. You know, why is why do we have this disease and people who are evil to one another? And why you know why is there evil? Why is there sin? Why doesn't God just make it easy for us. And I'm like, you know, the answer to that has to be that it's hard because he, he allows it to be hard. I mean, it's like, this is not something that's out of his control. So there is a, there is something there that he wants us to go through. Yeah. You know, this, this gets back to, to the, the very beginning and the way that the, the Bible describes how we fell into this condition in the first place. And in, in Genesis chapter three, you know, it says that, that the tempter comes to to us and, and he gives us this temptation that, you know, God is mean and he's, you know, got this one restriction that you can't eat. And by the way, it's the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. So it's right on our topic for this week, right? Right. You know, and he says, you know, you can't have that. And and the enemy comes and says, wait, 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 wait. there's a restriction? <laughs> God, has, God has put a restriction? Oh, no, 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 no. He just knows that if you ever eat from this man, your life is going to be so great and you can be like God. And then even Adam eat. And in doing so, this is what they're expressing. It is more important for me to be like God than to be with God. Mm. And I think it's really profound, like for the person out there who struggles with this, you know, it, it kind of tees up specifically for this week's talk about wisdom and knowledge. You know, Adam and Eve thought that they were getting this great deal when they ate from the tree of knowledge. But I love how revealing this next verse is when it says they ate and they realized and they knew is the word and they knew that they were naked. Mm. And so Satan comes and promises this. You could be like God. Just eat it. You'll have this knowledge of good and evil, which is literally like an experiential, intimate knowledge. Like in chapter four, it'll say Adam knew his wife Eve and she became pregnant. So it's like you it's not just 
curiosity, you know, you know you have some information about good and evil. You experience good and evil. Yeah. And the moment that they tried life without God, what's the first thing they knew? It wasn't some exhilarating thing. The first thing they knew was that they were naked. Well, what does that mean? It's it's saying, you know, they recognize their vulnerability. They recognize just how weak and, and inadequate and corrupt they were apart from God. And, and with God, prior to that moment, they'd walked around in absolute freedom. They had never even considered the fact that they were naked because they'd never felt the sting of judgment or somebody observing them. But in the moment that they separated from God, in that moment, they knew something was wrong with them. Mm-hmm. Everything about them turned inward and said, everything is about me. And so we don't want God and we don't want to love each other. And everything became this self-absorbed fallen state and we even even ourselves you know we begin to examine all the deficiencies in us and we're overrun with fear and shame and anxiety and hatred and and the human condition comes and so the lord comes by the way the the beauty of the story satan comes and says you know hey i've got a way for you to become like god and the reality is adam and eve were made (laughs) <laughs> to become like God. Right. That that was the whole purpose. We find that in Romans 8, you know, where it says that, you know, the, the point of all this is for us to be conformed into the image of the Son. We're, we're made to be like him. John, John writes in one of his epistles that when we see him, we shall be like him. So the design of God is that we're going to become like God. Satan comes with a different program and says, take it. It's all about you. Just snatch it and, it, and, and you can be like God. And Jesus says, no, no, no. Out of God's goodness, he is going to give you, you know, the ability to be like him. Right. And, you know, it's all by his kindness and goodness and through relationship with him. And the reality is we don't want to acknowledge that we, we owe him our lives. Right. And so we go the route of trying to engineer it on our own. And that brings nakedness and sadness and shame and all those other things that come along with the fall. That's really, I tell you what, that's really profound. That I, you, you said it and we moved right past it, but I don't know that I've ever heard it put in exactly those words before. This idea that Adam and Eve thought that it was more important to be like God than to be with God. That is just such a profound statement because that right there describes what's wrong with humanity is that mm-hmm. humanity wants to be like God. Yeah. You know, I was looking at that passage before, and even in that moment when humanity spits in God's face and says, I want nothing to do with you anymore, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do it on my own. You know, at the moment that God takes them out of the Garden of Eden, already at that moment, he has made a decision that he is going to suffer a fate far worse than Adam and Eve ever will. He, you know, his son is going to go to a cross And he is going to redeem us. He's going to redeem the very people who spat in his face. And here's what's beautiful about that. You know, when we talk about knowledge and, you know, being filled with misery of knowing how corrupt and how empty life is, this is what Jesus does for us. And this is the beauty of of what God's got going on here. You know, in the beginning, Adam and Eve were, you know, they were in the garden and they were with God and their relationship with God seemed to be conditional upon obedience, right? Right. And so, you know, they were with God so long as they were good enough in some sense. Mm -hmm. As a result of what Jesus does on the cross, Jesus has kind of opened our way back to the garden. 
to be with God again, to be in this perfected world that we place our hope in, you know, that we're looking forward to. But we have it so much better than Adam and Eve ever did, Mm -hmm. ever did, because our standing with God is no longer conditioned upon our innocence. You know, it, it is entirely conditioned upon the righteousness of Christ. You know, when he goes to the cross, he snatches away all of our disobedience and takes it to himself and pays for it. But he clothes us with his righteousness. So now forever I stand before God with absolute security. I don't have to feel the shame of a nakedness or inadequacy before God like I don't measure up by myself. Absolutely I don't measure up. Right. But I don't go before God saying, hey, God, look at me. Mm. I go before the Lord and say, I am purchased by your son. And I'm absolutely secure because I am clothed. And that's one of the big metaphors of of the New Testament. You know, I am clothed in the righteousness of Christ. Mm -hmm. No longer do we carry the shame. No longer do we carry the fear. No longer do we carry the hopelessness of what's to come. He has given us everything. Mm -hmm. And now when we submit to him, we become like God. You know, sorry for rambling all over Genesis. I was writing about Genesis recently. Yes. Um, <laughs> I told everybody you were off slaving over our hot keyboard last week. So. <laughs> but one of, one of my favorite things when I, was, when I was going through this, I had this realization that, that when Satan comes and says, eat from the tree of knowledge and you can become like God. When we hear that, every one of us thinks, oh, what would it be? You know, what is it like to be like God? You know, we immediately start saying, oh, well, I full control. I, you know, I get everything I want. I can just produce blessings whenever, whenever I want to. And we think that being like God means you lose any vulnerability. And the New Testament comes along and says, you know, if you, if you want to know what it's like to be like God, you, you don't have to speculate. Mm-hmm. Here's Jesus. You want to be like God? Let me show you what that looks like. Yep. It's a relationship of somebody who has ultimate authority and ultimate power and who sets aside every advantage he has to lift up the disadvantaged. It's somebody who lays his life down for others. That If you want to be like God, self-sacrifice, faithfulness, beauty, all of that is what it means to be like God. And the reason why Adam and Eve ended up in so much trouble is they confused only God's abilities and not God's heart. Mm-hmm. You know, I have, uh, we're going through kind of a, a unique time in our country right now where there's just a lot of unrest over, <laughs> I wish it was just over one thing, but people are arguing over <laughs> so many things right now. And I keep coming back to this point, which is just echoes what you just said, which is Jesus Christ is the undisputed, undefeated heavyweight champion of all time in the whole universe in giving up his rights, giving up his freedom and giving up his comfort. So we're supposed to be like him. We know what we're supposed to do, period. If we're going to be imitators of him, if we're going to be followers of him, then we have our example. There's nothing less comfortable than being crucified that I can think of. You know, he all of these things that he did. I mean, he gave up the pleasures of heaven, Sam. He, gave, you know, mm-hmm. he came down and made himself a little lower than the angels, it said, you know, to, to tabernacle or to make his tent to dwell among us. He gave up everything that he had in heaven because we were worth that much to him. We should be the ones that are quickest to give up our own personal freedom and comfort for the sake of others. It doesn't mean that you don't, you know, that you don't want the freedoms that you're entitled to. It's not like I'm walking down the street going, what can I do to get rid of my own freedoms today? (laughs) We need to do more 
to follow him and to imitate him. Um, I tell you what, let's pivot back to let's pivot back to the Ecclesiastes because the, I I did want to Solomon's next point here was interesting because I feel like he is playing the game of opposites. Um, after he gets done talking about what's crooked cannot be made straight and what's lacking can't be counted, he goes on to say, "I said in my heart, again looking to his heart, right, looking inward." Mm-hmm. I have acquired great wisdom, surpassing all who were over Jerusalem before me, and my heart has had great experience of wisdom and knowledge. And again, and I applied my heart. So again, Solomon's looking within himself. He's looking inside of himself. I think that's important. To, I, I, you know, you've said this before. You, when you go through the passage, when you see something being repeated, like, I, you know, I applied my heart. I said in my heart. I applied in my heart. When you see something being repeated like that, you, you take notice of it because it's important. <laughs> and he says, I applied my heart to know wisdom and to know madness and folly. I perceive that this is also but a striving after wind, for in much wisdom is much vexation, and he who increases knowledge increases sorrow. It sounds to me like he says, in order to understand knowledge and wisdom, that he had to also understand madness and folly. Is that mm-hmm. is that kind of how you read that, or or am I misapplying that? Yeah, no, I mean, I, th- I think for the person, it's almost like he's saying here, you know, uh, before before I knock, <laughs> before I knock madness and folly, right? You know, I need to be able to experience it and 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 say, you know what, this doesn't work either. Sometimes the best way we can learn about something is to learn about its negation. Mm-hmm. You know, you can't <laughs> properly appreciate light until you've been in darkness and you can't appreciate being warm until you've been cold. If all you have read is nice and warm and comfortable, then you can't appreciate being warm until the first time you step outside in Canada in, in the middle of January and, you know, <laughs> and your breath freezes in your in your nose and mouth and you're spitting ice cubes, then all of a sudden the beach in Florida sounds pretty good. Uh, so, you know, I mean, I, I feel like you have yeah. to kind of understand the negation thing. So, Yeah, and that's kind of like, you know, Solomon is the experiences this all over the place. It's like if you were to look at the Old Testament of, of all the books, the greatest love story captured in the Old Testament is the Song of Solomon. You know, he writes about this amazing, beautiful, monogamous love affair and here's a guy who had 700 wives and 300 concubines, you know, like he'd experienced the extreme on one side to be able to understand the beauty of what it would have been like on the other side had it gone perfectly. Yeah. Um, and so, yeah, you're right. I think I think that <laughs> he, he does that quite a lot. So um, is it you feel like we can now go over to the to the light side? We've been on the we've been on the hopeless side for a while. Now we can take a look at what Paul says in Philippians. Yeah, let's do it. Okay, because Philippians one, nine through 11, just three verses in, in this week's passage, but they're but they're brilliant. Paul says, and it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment so that you may approve what is excellent. And so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. Paul is saying that knowledge and wisdom for the believer serve a purpose, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, and one of the things that you see in this passage is, is it's like, you know, if you just chase after knowledge, it will leave you empty. It, it leaves you going nowhere. You just kind of wither in it like there's nowhere to take it. But the moment that you add the gospel, the moment that, that, that the love of Christ comes in and abounds, then all of a sudden your knowledge and discernment actually drives you towards, toward excellency and, and hope and, and righteousness and a life of meaning. And, 
that you cannot possibly have if there is no God or no hope of salvation. And so now, if you if you infuse your knowledge and wisdom with the gospel, now it comes to to life and is really beautiful. Mm. It's a completed wisdom. And he says it's going to allow our love to abound more and more. I mean, you think back to, to our conversions, you know, the, the moment when, when Christ really became real to us. You know, sure. you reach that moment where, where your own knowledge of life leaves you going, oh, this is gross. I, I don't know how I can do this anymore, you know. And then all of a sudden the gospel comes and you find that healing. You find, you know, where all that hopelessness had been. Now all of a sudden you find the satisfying love of God. What does that do? Okay, so that, that new wisdom that comes with the gospel now pours through you to others. It really does make your love abound more and more. You have all this because you have the knowledge of what it's like to be hopeless. You have the knowledge of what it's like to walk through suffering and emptiness and, and all of that stuff. But now the gospel comes into it and you're like, oh man, there's, there is, there's a, there's a purpose for this and there's a cure for this. And here he is. Um, and it, it does make you go out with a heart that wants to love. And, and for that love to abound. First mm. Corinthians 13, Paul again says, If I have all prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but do not have love, I am nothing. Mm-hmm. And so it's almost like he's, he's taking what Ecclesiastes is saying, and, and he's saying, without love, it's all nothing. It's smoke. You know, for a guy who was a, a Pharisee and kind of a hard arguer, Paul wrote a lot about love. Mm-hmm. <laughs> he spent a lot of time talking about that. And you think about how, you know, with his his record of all that he had learned, you know, all the bondage of the law and keeping all the Pharisaical codes and how he'd gone around persecuting, uh, you know, Christians in the early church and how he had done all these things to have Jesus come and in spite of all that, you know, just kind of pull him out of bondage and give him liberty and show him love despite the fact that he was persecuting him. And, you know, I think Paul was in a unique perspective to understand and value love in a way, you know, that, that lot, lots of other people couldn't have. You know, I think I remember being in, in seminary and, you know, I was a just super Pharisee, you know, had all kinds of hidden sins that nobody knew about. You know, I put on the show and, you know, had the, you know, good theology and everything else. And I remember one of my professors, Dr. Gage, and he he just started talking and he's like, let me tell you what it's like for a Pharisee. And he was being very, very tender. He's like, you know, we should really, really, you know, show mercy to these people because they walk around and they feel the pressure to always have a mask on. You know, they're always performing. They never have freedom. They don't know love. They, you know, that you, that you might think you're loving them, but you're only loving, you know, the projection of, of who they present to you. And so they never feel authentically known and loved. And it's one of the loneliest existences you can have. And I had to get up out of my chair in seminary and go to the bathroom and it surprised me and I just started sobbing. Mm. Um, and it was the beginning of, of the end of when God at least started showing me some of my <laughs> pharisaical tendencies. But what made it amazing was, you know, as he's talking about that, he says, Jesus sees past all of it 
and he loves. He doesn't want you to wear the mask anymore. He doesn't want you to feel that you've got to clothes over who you are. You know, he's going to make you righteous and he's going to transform you where you are and how you are. And now you can be free, you, being fully known and fully loved. And I remember, man, I had never before been so grateful for the love of Jesus as when he busted through that that Pharisee of pretend religion. Mm-hmm. I, it was it was that was gross. And so I think you know Paul, who'd been living this life, climbing the ladder of Pharisees, and um, you know doing all of these things. I imagine when Christ broke through that and then chased after him to show him mercy and love. I, Man, I imagine he experienced love in waves like you know many of us can't even imagine. Mm. When Paul says that uh, that we may approve what is excellent, what do you think he's talking about there? When he says approving what is excellent, is it just is this this idea of just knowing you know good from bad, right from wrong? Is is to it's to have this in, instinctive knowledge of what it is that we should be doing? I think what he, when he's saying that you may approve of what is excellent. Mm-hmm. He's saying, I, I don't even think he's, he's necessarily talking about, you know, as a, as like a, a judgmental standpoint where you're back there going, yes, I think that is excellent. Okay. I, I think what he's talking about is that you're, you're actually giving endorsement to what is excellent. You want that in your life. Um, you know, to, to personalize this, I remember when I, when I first came to faith, you know, I'd come out of a, a background of, of drinking and partying and doing all those things. And one of the biggest downers about thinking about becoming a Christian, was I didn't want the boringness, (laughs) the boring nature of the Christian life, where it was like, okay, we're not going to go out and do these fun things. Now we're going to go to bowling alleys and movie theaters, and life is pretty much over because nothing's fun. And one of the biggest surprises in my life um, is that, you know, God didn't just make me go, okay, fine, I'm going to live the Christian life, but I'll just kind of hold my nose and endure it. He began to change my heart so that my heart, rather than rebelling against what was excellent, actually started approving it. I started enjoying it. I started liking what was excellent. And I think right here, when he's saying, you know, I'm praying that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and discernment so that you may approve of what is excellent. I think what he's saying is you're going to turn away from endorsing the things that are corrupt and Mm -hmm. empty and you're now going to approve of the things of, for which I've designed you, the things that are excellent. I did find it interesting that um, when it says that you approve what's excellent, so to be, and so be pure and blameless, that the word that's pure there is actually a word that comes from the world of commerce in that time, hmm. and that it referred to something that was genuine. The picture that uh, one of the commentaries that I was reading had, he said that uh, it says in the ancient world, um, dishonest pottery dealers filled cracks in their inferior products with wax before glazing them over and painting them, which made worthless pots difficult to distinguish from expensive ones. Of course, they would then, mm. you know, they crumble later because they were cracked. The only way to avoid being defrauded was to, and I love this picture, was to hold the pot up to the sun, to the light, and it made the wax filled cracks that were obvious made them obvious where they had been filled in and that dealers would marked their would mark their fine pottery that could withstand the sun testing as sinicera without wax so this whole you know this word blameless which is also means without offense it can it refers to a relational integrity and so in a way that i think what paul's getting at too when he says that 
those, you know, like you say, to, to discern what we want in our lives. It's so, it's so the result of it would be that we could withstand close inspection when we're held up to the light. And I was like, you know, it's a, that's a terrific word picture. I'm just, you know, I love that. You know, it's a terrific word picture. That's really cool. And you're not a fake. You're, you're, right. you're not a fake. This is authentically who God has made you to be because religion will say, put on the show, you know, right. show up and show everyone how good you are. The authentic gospel allows the love of God to take root in you to where it actually begins to change who you are. Yeah. You're authentic in front of people and God. That's cool. I love that. I also think that's interesting then because it gives some meaning to what Paul says about being filled with the fruit of righteousness. This idea that, that, you know, what God has been, what God is trying to do in us is to create these genuine containers that he can then fill with the fruit of righteousness that he, of himself, basically. Well, he certainly and, likes that metaphor. He uses the jars of clay elsewhere in second Corinthians. Yeah. You know, being filled. Right. It's cool. So as we as we look at how Solomon viewed knowledge and wisdom and how Paul views knowledge and wisdom, what really is the difference between the two of them? Is it simply that that Solomon is talking about knowledge that doesn't take God into account? Is it just that is it that simple? I mean, is that the way we can answer that question? I think the primary difference that you find here is, you know, in in the the preacher in Ecclesiastes when Solomon is playing this character, he's saying Man, you can chase down all the wisdom and all the knowledge that you want to. And if it's outside of God, it will ultimately make you more depressed and more vexed than if you'd never gone down that road to begin with. Mm-hmm. And and so then Paul comes along and, and actually the, the teaching of Scripture entirely, and he's saying, if you want greater wisdom, then lean on God's wisdom. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, because he has he has the answers. Um so in, in Mason's sermon, he he referenced the wisdom of Solomon displayed in wisely uh, deliberating between the two prostitutes. So that, you know, the story goes that the two prostitutes are asleep and one of them rolled over and smothered their baby and killed the baby in the, the middle of the night while the other baby of the other prostitute lived. And so in the morning, both of them, you know, they come before Solomon and they say, you know, this baby is my baby. She killed her baby. And the other one's saying, no, 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 the baby's my baby. And Solomon shows this remarkable wisdom. And he, he looks to his servant and he says, bring me the sword. And what he's going to do is he's going to cut the baby in half. And, and so in doing that, by calling for the sword, he reveals the hearts of the women. Mm-hmm. You know, the, the mother who genuinely, that's, that's her baby, says, no, 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 she can have it. And, and the other one is like, well, I don't care. And in the New Testament, Jesus is going to make a comment that's really kind of like, you look at it and you think, well, that's really bizarre for Jesus to say. He said, I did not come to bring peace in the world, but a sword. And he's not, Jesus, if, if you know Jesus, you know, commands Peter to put the sword away. He's not talking about a military campaign. He's talking about the sword that pierces into the soul. And it's going to bring about a decision of loyalty. Mm-hmm. Do, are you going to love? Are you going to be the one who, who, who will give up and surrender and sacrifice for the sake of something you love? Or are you that selfish person that will cling and, and bring destruction for your own desires? Mm-hmm. And so when Jesus says, I came to bring a sword, 
He's talking about the word of God and the word of God comes and it brings wisdom and it's going to force each and every one of us to make a decision. Is this where I'm going to base the hope of my life on, on the wisdom of God and what he says and what his ultimate and eternal plans are for my life? Or do I want to go it alone? And, and it's no accident that in the second coming, when Jesus returns, he's described with this really kind of bizarre picture of him coming riding on a horse with a sword coming out of his mouth. Well, what is that sword going to do? It's going to reveal. It's going to cut to the heart to show where your loyalties lie. Mm -hmm. And so wisdom in the scriptures is trusting in a God who knows far more than you, who is far wiser than you, and has laid down a design and a path that we can follow after that is ultimately going to infuse our lives with love and hope, and all the wonderful things that God has, because a wisdom without him is absolutely empty and miserable. If I can uh, borrow one more verse from the Apostle Paul, I think Hebrews 4.12 sums it up pretty well. For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. Amen. And so Jesus brings a wisdom and a sword far greater than Solomon. Hmm. Well, we'll let that stand as our last word on the subject of knowledge and wisdom this week. We hope that you've enjoyed your time with us, that it's been profitable for you. We do invite you to pick up with the message series, All Things New. Those messages are available on our smartphone app. Just go to the app store of your choice and look for Rio Vista Community Church, or you can come to our website at riovistachurch.com. That's R-I-O, vistachurch.com. You can find all of the uh, sermons and messages there, the full services. You can also find them on our YouTube channel. That's youtube.com slash Church. You can find all of the messages there as well. So we encourage you to follow along both with the messages and with these podcasts. Uh, We've enjoyed very much having you with us, and we'll be back next week with another in the series, All Things New, and we look forward to seeing you then. We hope you enjoyed your time with us and you will both subscribe to the podcast and listen regularly. You can find out more about Out of Water, catch up on past episodes, and access show notes at our website, riovistachurch.com slash out of water.